Background of the book. So my business had changed a lot. I saw what was happening with this kind of slow then fast march towards fully remote work and, and distributed teams. And I started writing this book and I thought I was going to write a content marketing book. We need to do a better job of working together, of collaborating. We need to cut down on the amount of meetings we're having. You can just send a video most of the time. I think we need to start creating cultures of actually watching the video updates that get sent and making better use of everyone's work time, essentially, is the idea. It's unnatural and everyone's either talking over each other or people just aren't talking at all. And so we need to figure out how to communicate more seamlessly and, and more like if we were doing it in real life. And I think there's a, a lot of tools and strategies I can offer in the book to kind of help us get there. Hey, welcome to the business of being. My name is Paul Kasmus, and I believe that everyone is on a path in life. Growing up, I always loved stories that involved showing someone's origin. You know, movies like Kill Bill, Batman Begins, Star Wars, and The 36th Chamber of Shaolin. These stories captivated my interest, seeing the growth of the character through their struggles, challenges, and victories along the way. I speak with entrepreneurs, CEOs, and business owners about their life and business to learn what it takes to be successful and to discover their unique hero's journey. The conversations will enlighten you on the right mindsets for overcoming any obstacle you might face to help guide you on your unique path in business. Today I'm talking with Patrick Frank, an award-winning video producer, founder of EditVideoCalls.com, and the author of The Video First Arrow, where he covers the best strategies on how to beat Zoom fatigue, create trust-building content from Zoom conversations, host engaging experiences for family and friends and coworkers, meaning no more lame virtual happy hours. He's been self-employed for eight years and has made videos for organizations like the Washington Nationals, Hilton, and Cisco. And on top of all that, he recently beat cancer this year. Absolutely love this conversation with Patrick. I, I felt like an hour in that we had just get, uh, got started. Uh, he's just got some amazing insights on, on business, using video, and taking advantage of all the platforms that we have, but still creating a human and engaging experience. And that's really what people are after. So enjoy this conversation. You'll get tons of insight and strategies on how to conduct Zoom meetings, use videos within your organization, and a whole lot more. I know you personally, and you're in seven years of doing video stuff, working for yourself, brought in, let's say, 1.4 million in revenue for you and your business without employees, which is stellar. So you're you're very much a vet. You know, you've hit that that milestone. I think what I mean, whatever the statistic is, whether it's the first three years, first five years, you've definitely surpassed that. So yeah, curious just like where you were seven years ago and then getting to where now, because we do, I do want to talk about your book. I want to talk about uh, how you've changed your pricing model and all that, but just curious where you were at with that other job. And then seven years later, still doing it and still crushing it. <laughs> yeah. So seven years ago, I was working at a think tank in Washington, D.C. And a think tank is basically a nonprofit that houses a lot of scholars and in between government jobs and private sector jobs, they end up at these think tanks where they really have no de required deliverables. Some people publish a lot and do a lot of stuff. Some people just sit there and do nothing. And I, I did not understand the model at all. And as like a technical person who was hired as a video producer, it just seemed like the whole think tank industry, I, I, I just hated it. Like I didn't, I, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. And so a couple things happened. And, and the first was that I just started picking up freelance jobs on the side. And then I was able to do it where I was working on the freelance jobs. I was 
pretty underutilized at most of my full-time positions. And so I would just do freelance work while I'm just sitting there. In fact, I even had one job where it was a different department within the company. And I somehow convinced them to pay me as a contractor because I said, this isn't part of my job. I work for this department. I don't work for this other one. So I'm sitting here basically getting paid twice for doing some simple work. And so, and then when I left, you know, I left on good terms with that last client, the previous ones, not so much, but I basically said, look, I'm really good at making these documentary style short films and in this kind of editorial angle with some of these, these narratives and things like that. I would love to do, let's call it one video a month and we'll do it for X amount and I'll do it as a freelancer. So you don't have to pay any benefits and you don't have to provide any oversight or anything like that. I may still have borrowed their equipment <laughs> for those before I have my own stuff. And, 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 and that turned out really well because now like this has given me a baseline of income where I can, I know I can depend on that one project a month. So even if I can't get any other clients, I still have that one. And so I think one thing I always tell people as they're venturing into freelancing or deciding whether or not they should leave their jobs freelance full time is if you can turn your employer into your client, that is a great move. Yeah, that's really interesting strategy. It makes sense because, you know, I, I wonder how many people would go for that. I mean, I guess that speaks to your, to your employer. I don't know too much about them, but be like, listen, I got something going to give me flexibility and you're going to get the same outcome of what I'm producing, but you're not having, you know, me on your payroll and maybe you're not paying me as much money. Right. Is that, is that sort of how you approach yeah, that? Exactly. I think a lot of employees are worried that they're replaceable. And I think that if you're a cool person, you're easy to work with, you're good at your job, you can very easily negotiate taking a few parts of your 40 hours a week and saying, Hey, I'm going to do this 25%, 50%, 10 hours, 20 hours a week that I really like doing. And I'm really good at, I'm going to do that as a freelancer and you can pass off the other piece to somebody else. I think I'll, you underestimate how many employers would go for that. Yeah, that takes, that takes some balls, I think, to, to <laughs> approach that, approach that with them. So you did that. They were your, your employer was your first, and so you, you had that that first revenue because that's a, I mean there's a lot of milestones that people get to in the service industry whether it's video digitalized or whatever it's like that very first person who says yes I will pay you money it, it can be a big deal so I guess you just from there kept kept expanding on it kept kept growing and, and taking on more work and then it's become a you know great part of your livelihood yeah absolutely and the other thing too is like I feel like I'm, I'm just a terrible employee. Like I kind of joke that I'm just pretty unemployable to begin with, but also like there was, I, I, so I basically had a bunch of jobs from let's say like 2009 to 2013 when I branched out full time. And so, you know, in that three, four years, I probably had four or five different jobs. And so some reasons that I left sometimes were my fault and sometimes were my employer's fault. And I definitely like got let go for budgetary reasons and things like that. One interesting thing that did happen though, is like those companies that have a lot of turnover that are like, you know, by all intents and purposes, like you can describe as bad companies. It's actually really interesting because you meet a lot of people because there's so much turnover, those people go work for other companies and then they remember you. And so your network actually grows a lot faster if you work for crappy companies that have a lot of turnover. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but it actually worked to my benefit because those first few years I had 
contacts at all these different places that I had worked with only, you know, from being in that job for 12 months or whatever it was. So that's an interesting way for something to happen. And my belief is always like nothing is ever wasted. So if you're, let's say you're in a job that sucks for two years, that is two years. I didn't make what I should have. I was getting underpaid. Well, there's always some kind of advantage. And, And you said it earlier, if you're just a cool, like fun person that people like to be around, the way that most connections I've seen in business over the years is, hey, I, you should work with Patrick. He does video. Well, what type? I don't know. I don't know anything about what he does. He's a cool <laughs> dude. He's a cool dude. You should talk to him. Like that's that's how most introductions are made. And so if if that's if that's what you're doing, and I mean everyone's got their own style of of different types of charisma and personality. But if you're not if you're just not a total asshole to everybody, like go a long way. No one needs to know how how good you are at something. That'll come later. But to but to get your foot in your door, it's I'll just be cool to people. Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally with you. It's it's how I hired. That's how I hire a lot of people, and and even you know personally, right? Like when I got married a lot of years ago, we interviewed a couple of photographers. Well, who's the one we want to be friends with the most? Okay, let's hire him. You know, and and now like you know he's a personal friend, and I send him gigs, and he sends me gigs, and stuff like that. So yeah, you can never go wrong when you hire people that you want to be friends with essentially. Yeah. Which is a different mindset than if you're like, I'm hiring this person to do what I tell them to do because they're now working for me. And even (laughs) if it's like a photographer, like, Hey buddy, you know, some people get into that mindset when they're like the second money trades hands, they think that they're in charge. And that's why like, you know, wait staff and retail folks get shitted on because people are like, well, I'm spending money here. You know, Mm. I can, I can bully you around. Right. I mean, I think the people that get it the worst are like people that work for airlines, right? And, you know, they're just doing their job, right? Like they just want to go home and hang out with their kids just like you. So yeah, it never, there's never a reason to be mean to people like that for sure. Right, um, right. So curious and, and we'll, you know, again, looking at the time, it's crazy because I'm like, I want to talk about everything, but we'll we'll get to it. There's this first, let's say the first like two, three years like how, how long did it take and whether it was two years or two months before you're like, I feel like I'm hitting my stride. I feel like I'm really in my zone. I'm making money. I'm not, you know, cause early on people are like, fuck, how do I pay the bills and, and keeping that cash flow? So just curious, like what that was like of going from employed steady paycheck to now you're fully responsible for your paycheck. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty lucky where I really hit the ground running back in 2013, 2014. And I really didn't stop until last year. Like last year was really the first, Oh shit year. Like I'll, I'll be totally honest. Like I just was lucky enough to kind of know enough people and I didn't do really any advertising. And it was always, I was lucky enough where when one project ended, another one came in the door. And, uh, and so I relied on that for, a good five or six years or something like until last year when I wasn't allowed to film anything and everything was just kind of like, Oh crap. Like, what are we going to do? And I know a lot of people have felt like that in various industries and various businesses, especially events. And, And that's the thing too, is, you know, traditionally between May and June, we're doing a ton of events. We're, we're filming the stage. We're filming people talking in the hallway. We're filming inter sit down interviews with the people on the stage. Like there's just so many things that, that, you can film at events that happen both on stage and off. 
And so it's always the best time of year, right? And so you come out of a sleepy winter, December, January, February, not a whole lot going on. And it's always just gangbusters. And so I know like if I can make it to March, I'm good. And then last year, of course, we made it to March and poof, like nothing, right? So, so that was tough. And then that made me kind of think about what are different ways that I can deliver videos that I can create value for people that doesn't require cameras. And so that's when I started kind of doing some productized videos, some kind of simpler, more templatized work, helping people edit their everyday Zoom calls and, and video calls and things like that. And, and really just trying to be flexible and trying to help our clients with whatever they need. We have a lot of nonprofit clients. So we've been doing a lot of virtual events and, and creating different videos to be played at, at those events and doing some live and, and hybrid pre-recorded and live programs and things like that. So yeah, I think it's just important to stay flexible. Man, which I didn't even think about, when, and especially when we spoke last year, I was like, well, they're not, no events, there's no, oh, you want to get more than one person together? That's, that's going to be an issue. Changing though. Well, and so on that, your, your book, it's, which is out now, right? Oh, it comes out in August. Okay. The video first era, people and platforms powering next generation communication coming out in August. It seems like that's what you were just talking about. Going to that productized service, taking people's virtual events, their Zooms and creating content. Is that, well, give us the background of the book as opposed to me. just. Like, yeah, yeah, background of the book. So my business had changed a lot. I saw what was happening with this kind of slow then fast march towards fully remote work and, and distributed teams. And I took this book writing course that some friends had recommended that's affiliated with Georgetown University. And I started writing this book and I thought I was going to write a content marketing book. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll talk about Gary Vaynerchuk and, you know, repurposing content and creating content from, you know, this video, that video. And it was like, it was going okay, but it didn't really like, it didn't really click with me. And, and throughout the course of, of the course, I really just kind of, the, the, the message was always like, don't try to be a great writer, just try to be helpful. And I think that as I was trying, you know, hundreds of different video tools and apps and interviewing people that their businesses had totally changed like mine and they were using video in interesting ways and starting businesses. That's really where I kind of landed with the book, which is really, I think that because remote work is going to be permanent, we need to do a better job of working together, of collaborating. We need to cut down on the amount of meetings we're having. You can just send a video most of the time. And so I think we need to start creating cultures of actually watching the video updates that get sent and making better use of everyone's work time, essentially, is the idea. But then it also extends to your personal life as well, right? We've all been to these Zoom happy hours. Most of them are boring as shit. And so what can we do that's better than a Zoom happy hour? And so I talk about a couple different apps and platforms where you can invite your coworkers, your family, your friends, and, and do some different activities that are not just a Zoom happy hour. So it's really, there's a whole new host of video apps that are out and coming out that are gonna kind of improve upon Zoom. Like Zoom gave us a great first taste of how this works, right? Where it's easy to use, everyone has an account, everyone kind of knows how it works. But it's awkward, right? Like we're in this Brady box, Brady bench view, 
and, and it's unnatural and everyone's either talking over each other or people just aren't talking at all. And so we need to figure out how to communicate more seamlessly and, and more like if we were doing it in real life. And I think there's a, a lot of tools and strategies I can offer in the book to kind of help us get there. What's, what's interesting is that a lot of what you're saying sounds like how people are going to build a culture in the remote world. And so, because in my mind, I'm like, well, well, Patrick's a video guy and he knows video and he's great at it. And this is going to be a book about, about that, which it seems like it is because you mentioned a lot of the different softwares and tools that are available. Yeah. But it, it sounds like it's almost like a guide to helping people, whether, you know, manager and owner, CEO, whatever. It's like, this can help you improve your culture, improve the culture of your work, remote folks. And, and here's some strategies and tools to do it rather than the, we're going to have a mandatory Zoom happy hour. It's going to be fun. You better attend or you're mandatory get... fun, mandatory yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah. Like everyone got real sick of that. But is that, is that somewhat of like the angle you're going? It's almost like you're, you're advising on the tools, but you're much more driving, helping folks drive culture with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the whole idea with the term, the video first era is that there is a time and a place to be together in person. And, but my argument is that it's going to take a, a lot to justify that. And so I think people want to live where they want to live. They shouldn't have to live within a 30 mile radius of their office. You know, there's, there's a great quote from, from, from someone, I forget who it was, but he basically was like, you know, we, we literally travel to an arbitrary location to work on a machine that is designed to be used anywhere, right? We have laptops, we have internet connections. Before you had to go to the office to be able to utilize those things, but now we have it everywhere. And so, you know, I think we're, we're going to be looking back at this 20, 30 years from now and be like, man, I cannot believe we used to go to offices. Like, that's crazy. And again, justifiable up until what, 2010, 2015, something like that. But really within the last couple of years, as internet speeds and computers became less expensive, it really, it, it just, it's, it's more evolutionary than revolutionary this whole remote work idea. And so I think that our office habits need to change as well. It, it's almost like it's really speeding up the evolution of business and work environments and looking at what's going on on the West Coast, Silicon Valley, all the tech stuff has been going on for years and years and years. And I think the East Coast, even well, the past four or five years has caught up of, hey, maybe we actually give our employees a lot of benefits and time off and flexibility because that, that old school mindset of, wait, what do you mean you're not going to work here nine to five? It's like, well, well why shouldn't they? Well, I got to be able to see them. If you keep asking that question of why they have to be there, there could be some exceptions. But I feel like by and large, the answer is I fundamentally do not trust all my employees to get their shit done if I cannot look over their shoulder. And I feel like most people don't do that intentionally. It's just, well, that's just how it's always gone. But as people are seeing this, it's like, wait, I have to trust my employees because if I can't trust them, you can say you do. But then if you're like, you got to be here nine to five, buddy, you're, you're, I think you're still subtly saying, I don't fully, fully trust you. So it's a great, right. it's a great thing for employees for sure. Yeah. And, and I think too, that I think employers, managers are a little misguided as well. They think, okay, well, people are here in the office. That means that they're more productive at home. But what happens when you get to the office, Right. You start working on something and someone comes by and they ask you a question about something. Now it totally takes you out of what you were doing. Then you have a meeting. Then 
you start working again and then, and then something else happens and then it's lunch. And then it's, it's like, when do you actually get work done when you're in the office during that work day? You know, when you want to get work done, you either show up early, stay late or do it at home anyway. <laughs> so the whole idea of the office is just this distraction center where no one can really get anything substantial done because our days are just, we don't get long enough blocks of time to do, to get in the zone, deep work that we need to do. That's a good point. I mean, yeah, distraction city. And you mentioned video as a way to replace meetings, which I love that. I'm, I am curious first before, because that's something I do all the time, but like, what would you advise a company who's like, we want to bring our remote folks together and they know that everyone's sick of Zoom happy hours? Because you had mentioned a couple of these other things. So what, what, do, what, do, what are some ideas that you might spark in some people? Yeah, definitely. So there is a whole new host of video platforms coming out kind of around this idea of uh, social commerce and social selling. So think of it as like, QVC, but for the internet, right? And so Amazon's got one. There's one called Pop Shop Live. There's a couple of others that come out that have come out recently. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I kind of mentioned, and I was, I was talking to, to some people and reading some stories is, you know, instead of, let's say someone's got like a recognition coming up, they got like a 10 year anniversary with the company. But what you would do before is you'd, you'd get on Zoom. And uh, you say, oh, congrats, raise a glass, blah, 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 whatever, hang up, you're done, right? So instead, what you could do is you could go on one of these platforms, you could find an artist or, or some kind of artisan or something like that, and just say, hey, like, I want to commission you to make something for this employee that we're, they're celebrating. And then you can invite everyone into that space. They can interact with the artist, ask them questions about their work and their influences. There's a chat box feature. So it's like a lot more interactive. And I think you know, Airbnb online experiences is doing some of this as well. One of the things I did with my family over Thanksgiving when we weren't able to get together is we did a virtual tour of Venice. So that's one of the stories I talk about in the book. And it was actually really great. Like, yeah, could we have watched a YouTube video altogether about Venice? Sure. But having that tour guide there, be able to ask us all questions, personalize it for us. My kids were five and three. I really was like, here, go take your iPad, like go to the other room. Like you're not going to enjoy this. They were, they loved it. It was awesome. And the tour guide was great kind of involving them and asking them questions and stuff like that. So I think that we need to think more about experiences that we can have with people as opposed to just showing up and assuming that, you know, some conversation will be enough to elicit the kind of responses and reactions that we're trying to get. Yeah. It's almost like a skill set that is required and that may turn into a job of a facilitator. And this, this idea came to me speaking to a mentor. We were talking about clubhouse, which is all the rage. I mean, I don't, I feel like the rage has subsided. I, I think the way they launched was stellar, but I, I joined a group or a, a room that he was co-hosting and the host, as soon as I came in was like, Hey, we got, you know, someone new here, here, we're going to catch you up. She was moderating the shit out of this call in the best way, getting everyone up to speed, getting people like on stage. And after the call, my mentor, Kurt, was like, you know, that, that's what Clubhouse is going to turn into is that there's going to be people who are, it's almost like the, a new MC. If you're an MC in an event, but mm. just 
moderating an online discussion to make sure that everyone's engaged and stepping up as a leader. Because, yeah, it's very different if you're looking at a ton of squares. Well, I want to talk to that person or here's someone I need to catch up with. If you're in a physical space, you can make that connection. But when it's different platforms, I think it's interesting seeing how that changes. I think when you said tour guide of that, it's like, yeah, just interesting ways that people look at things. And that's kind of needed as like a specialty skill set. Yeah, well, if you want to talk about physical spaces, that's uh, a chapter where I talk about kind of adding a physical element to video calls. So there are a bunch of platforms that have come out recently. I'll use Gather, for example. So there's this platform called Gather. It's gather.town. And essentially, when you go to an event on Gather, the first thing you do is you choose your avatar, which looks like it came out of a Pokemon or Zelda video game. And that is their whole design aesthetic is it's all 2D video games. And when I interviewed them and I kind of asked about like, you know, what's with this like kind of hokey 2D pixelated design. And, and they, they had some really great answers. And they said, look, you know, video games have evolved so much. And there's so much research that goes into how the characters move. What's intuitive as far as the controls and you know, when you go into a new room in a video game and you see things like there are visual cues for all the different options that you have and things that you can do and things you can interact with. And so that's what they're trying to do with virtual events. So if you think about a teacher who has a, let's say they have like a lecture of like 50 kids or something like that. Right now, like if you're going to use Zoom, you could arbitrarily or somehow put people into breakout rooms and, and you would have to like automate, you manually assign them, blah, blah, blah. It's very clunky, but in gather what you do is you just say all right group one go over there group two go over there you know like have everyone physically move to a different spot and then that professor just literally walks around the room checks in on the discussion helps where they need to if they something comes up or they're like oh you know what i'd really like to address the whole class there's a button called spotlight and then everybody just kind of listens and and the professor can say hey something came up in group three where we were learning about this or this just wanted to mention that blah, blah blah okay continue with your small groups and so when you add that physical layer and you can actually walk around a virtual space with your video enabled and uh, your video only, like I will only be able to see you if I walk up to you. Otherwise you can't see my camera, you know? I can still send you a, a an SMS like message. But I, I think that originally I thought it was kind of lame and kind of weird, but as I've done more research and done these interviews and attended events on these various platforms, I really see how adding this virtual space layer to the video calls that we're accustomed to can really unlock a lot of cool potential. That's crazy. I did not know about gather.town. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll have to test it out. Well, curious on how you've adapted on the business last year being nutty. So I think at the time that we were speaking, you were starting maybe a new product as service and you know, editing people's Zoom calls for content. And then before the call or earlier, depending on how this gets edited, (laughs) we're talking about you moving away from the subscription-based model into back to a la carte maybe. And maybe, can you expand upon how that evolution's gone of how your business offerings have changed with Rona and then just with you growing as a business owner? Yeah, definitely. So I'm 35 now and... At the end of 2019, so even before all the craziness, I really decided like, I don't want to be 40 and dragging equipment to places and filming stuff. Like, it's just like, 
I don't have any physical ailments or anything like that, but I just mentally like, you know, I think being a videographer, is like a young man or young woman's game. And, uh, and I just kind of decided like, I don't really want to do that anymore. And so I was looking for different ways to productize my service, which is you know, that term just kind of means kind of take the deliverables that you have, that you have are customizing for people and kind of figure out how to deliver a repeatable templatized, simpler version of it. And so it started off where we were making social videos. So we would have all this footage from these clients and we would say, Hey, for a fixed price, we could go through and deliver these 30 second or 60 second cuts, just reusing some footage that we had left over or something like that. A lot of times people would go for it. And, uh, or if they couldn't afford our high ticket price where it's us showing up with cameras and filming on set, we could say, Hey, like, do you have footage left over? Like, can we, you just use photos or graphics or something and create for you these social videos as a way to have a lower cost offering. And both of those things worked out really well. So I was like, okay, like this is starting to work. And then, like I mentioned in May, we, we started edit video calls. And I, at first I started off as a subscription and I thought, okay, we'll do a video a week. So four orders per month, you send us your Zoom recording, we'll go through it and, and find these shareable moments and produce these videos for you to push out. And basically like it sucked because we would have all these open orders and people could not keep up fast enough with delivering their recordings. And so the orders would pile up and I would have to be on them about stuff. And, uh, and I, I don't like, maybe other people are not as annoyed by it, but when I see 30 or 40 just open orders sitting there with like no plan to finish them, it's, it brings me anxiety. Like I like one of the things I love about videos is that like when you finish it, it's done. It's not like a website that you have to maintain or do support or anything like that. But like when there's no path to get any of these things started, like, and, and every month we're triggering them, we're hitting their credit card, blah, blah, blah. It just, it just didn't work. And then if people kind of realize like, oh, this isn't working for X or Y reason. And, and most of the time it's just like, they just admit like, yeah, I just can't make this priority. Like there's just no way I'm going to be able to do it. Then they cancel. Right. And now you're like, okay, so they've canceled. So now I feel bad. And do I, how do I ask them to like restart again, blah, blah, blah. So like there, there's just a lot of, of, of things. Like I think when we start businesses and, and it's become the trend with SaaS and things like that is to do everything on a monthly subscription, recurring revenue. It's predictable. It's what you want to sell your company. It's like what people want to see. But I think for a lot of business, it just doesn't make sense. So we just started doing everything as packages, right? You have one, three and five order packages. We get through those five orders. They're happy with it. Maybe they come back in three months. Maybe they come back in a year. Like it doesn't matter. Like Honestly, if I can just make a handful of videos for people every year, I'd be happy. And so like really my, my focus is give them a good product, get them to see value from it, and then come back when they're ready to make more. So that's kind of been my shift on thinking as it re relates to recurring revenue and things like that. Interesting. So it's the same, it's in the end, the same deliverable, but instead of someone going on, Hey, we're going to do eight videos per month at this rate. And you found that most people weren't ready. Maybe by month three, they're like, dude, I, I got nothing else for you. Or right. it sounded like with the, the, the pile up of work, they may go six weeks without sending you anything. And then suddenly like, here's a shitload of stuff. Or, right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That, that would be too. Yeah. We'd have all these orders. They'd sit there not being worked on for a long time. And then all of a sudden it was like, we got all this stuff and we want it done now. It's like, it's really hard to plan for that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think we, we make a couple videos, 
they get done, then they come back, you know. And the other thing too is that we tell them like, you got 90 days to use this, right? Like we're closing this after 90 days, which I think is fair. And, you know, we're very upfront about that. So I think kind of having an end date where it's like, if, if, you, if you don't use it, you lose it. I think is also helpful to drive a little bit of a sense of urgency to like, hey, you invested in this, you pay for it, let's do it. Let's do it in a timely fashion, so. How, how have your clients responded to that? Honestly, I'm, I think it's, it's going much better across the board for everybody because they're not being charged for videos and time that they are not gonna need on a monthly basis. And it gives us an excuse to say, hey, you know, we did these videos for you a couple months ago, just wanted to see how it went. And if you'd be interested in creating some more, learning more about what you're doing, like that sort of thing. So, whereas opposed to, again, like the stigma of like, they canceled, right? Like they canceled, they don't like you anymore. They don't want to work with you anymore. Whereas it's like, oh yeah, we just, we finished the project. Like it's a lot, it's a lot, the, the door is, is open wider, I believe, than if they cancel, right? Right. And then... I feel like this is the case, correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't done anything necessarily subscription, but it's you're you're giving people a price in the subscription model that's probably far better than one off because you're thinking, well, I'm gonna keep people for three, four, five, six months, and and maybe by month four is when when you start really churning and making that money. So it sounds great as you have that re repeatable, predictable income, but you know, better, better to just charge what, 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 what the market rate is. You're competitive, but you're not trying to be the cheapest option. They get more of what they want and you get, you know, what you want in the longer term, which is consistent repeat or repeatable business, but not necessarily every single month, but you might have someone who orders three, four times a year from you. And that's a couple times a year. Good. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what you want. And I think too, and, and you know, I, I would love to talk to people that run SaaS companies doing this, but if I had someone who was paying for some software and didn't use it, like that would also be annoying to me. Like I may even like proactively go and cancel their account because if they're not getting any value out of it, like it's not really like, yeah, you're getting the money from it, but it's not helping, you know, they're not talking about how great what you're doing is like they're, they're, they're not a great customer if they're not using your product. So I think that's, that's something too, that I would love to learn more about from people who run SaaS companies and other people running subscription is, is how they handle that. Like how do they handle dormant accounts? Let's call it. That's a good point. I mean, I, I wonder if it's, if it's almost like the gold's gym model of they're going to sell thousands of $29, you know, monthly passes knowing that, 20% of those people, probably the classic 80-20 rule, honestly. Yeah, 20% of those people are going to actually show up consistently. And then 20% yeah. of the 20% are going to be there every day. So they're at, you know, so they don't... The 80% you know, subsidize the 20% in, yeah, yeah. in some way, I'm sure, at least in your goals gym model, for sure. Yeah. Which, and that's, I mean, that would be a whole other thing. I don't necessarily agree with what they do. I don't think it's inherently unethical by any means. But I remember when I had to get off that membership this couple of years ago, I had to physically show up and do it. I know. <laughs> and is there anything worse than companies that make it hard to cancel? I mean, they're just yeah. there's like a special layer in hell for those 
like you can't just click a button to cancel or you can't just email them to cancel. Like you actually have to get on the phone and jump through all these hoops and they try to upsell you on stuff like, oh man, that's terrible customer service for sure. Yeah. And I mean, you could, if you're looking at it purely from that retention metric without looking at the human being behind it, it's like, yeah, maybe you won the battle. Maybe your retention rate improved because you're making it that much more difficult to, for people to, to leave. But if you're ultimately completely focused on the client, that's, I think that's where businesses turn into long-term business like Zappos. It's like such an American business story of how good their customer service was. Mm-hmm. God knows how much money Amazon paid for him. That guy got paid and he should have, cause he was doing everything right. It's like, Hey, you those shoes don't, don't fit. You don't like them. Send them back. No questions asked. We're going to make it as easy for you to return these shoes as possible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was justly rewarded for being running a business in a, in, a, in a fantastic way. I don't know too many other details, but that's, again, if you're thinking the, the, the people who, who make it to the, like the long, long term, do things the right way, not necessarily just looking at the bottom line type of thing, because give it, giving sure. customers in the end what is best for them, you end up getting rewarded from that, I believe. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Customer service definitely something to focus on in the early stages of your company. Yeah. And that's something, something you got going, you got going for me. And then that, that, I believe that turns into word of mouth referrals. And then you're like, all I'm doing is sitting here. And then suddenly just more and more requests come in as a marketer. I think, you know, of course I think a lot of people need it, but the top tier companies do not need it. When you, it's almost like going super Saiyan for lack of a better expression, you're like, you reach a level where you don't need to do anything. Everything is just coming to you from all the work that you already put into it. Yep. Well, right. I want to, I'm curious, like in particular, the video you made for the nationals, what was that like? Oh yeah. So it was just a PR kind of thing where out in Washington, DC, they had, it was a dedication for Ryan Zimmerman field that they opened in Southeast Washington. I remember it was, it was probably in March or April. It was probably like around when the baseball season started and it was freezing cold. And then it, there was like hail. So they're like throwing out the first pitch and there was just like hail coming down and it was crazy. And so, like I said, we did, it was just like a little PR piece where we, I think Dusty Baker was the manager at the time. We talked to him and, you know, we talked to some of the kids and the parents and things like that. And so... Yeah, it was a fun day. It was definitely not baseball weather. It's the one thing I remember from that. It was really funny. Quite, quite the opposite. Yeah, right. What, uh, I mean, that's, that's a nice thing to have on your resume. Like, yeah, you know, we found videos for this nonprofit, this person that watched totally. the baseball team. Yeah, well, and, you know, again, for my kind of experience of being an employee and then moving to a freelancer, like one thing that I always tell people, like there's there's kind of this, discussion around free work, right? Like, should you work for free? Like, is that, and I I totally understand where that comes from. And I think unabashedly, yes, you should. Like, I think you need to demonstrate value. You need to be savvy about it. Don't just do free stuff for everybody. But you know, if I were to go to YouTube and put a whole bunch of Washington Nationals clips together and put a video together and send it to them and be like, hey, like I'm super pumped about this thing, whatever it might be, make it relevant. And then they can like retweet you or something, or they can, you know, give it to them to use or something like that. 
Like, yeah, you can absolutely put that on your website and say, like, I did a video for the Washington Nationals, you know? So even if I wasn't hired for it and it was something that I cared about, like that was, if I wanted to work in sports, if I wanted to, you know, do whatever, I think people need to just do it. Like I, I saw some Twitter thread, someone was like, hey, like I need someone to, to uh, create a YouTube banner for me. And a lot of people came in and they jumped on and they're like, hey, like, I would love to do this for you for free. Like, let me know when we can chat. And I just messaged the guys like, just do it. It's like, go to her website, grab some pictures and graphics, and then just make it and be like, here you go. So I actually did that for, for Morning Brew. The, I forget which, which, one of the Morning Brew guys had posted and they're like, hey, like looking for some short videos to repurpose my podcast. So I went to YouTube, downloaded his episode found a little shareable piece, put it in the edit, our edit video calls format and said, be like, Hey, like made this for you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And of course, like I got the retweet and I got some props on it. Didn't turn into any future work, but again, like I can say like I did a video for morning brew, which is, is something. So I think it's a really good way to build your portfolio is just to be smart about the kind of free work you can do. Look for opportunities. Don't be afraid to um, approach people. And again, like there's nothing better than saying like, Hey, like I made this for you feel free to use it, blah, blah, blah. If they don't, no problem. Just put it on your website. It doesn't matter. You know, you can, you can definitely be thoughtful about the, the kinds of portfolio items you have on your website. If you're in a creative field like video or photography or something. Right. And it, it's counter, you can call it counterintuitive. There, there's that traditionalism, like, Hey, if you're good at something, never do it for free or charge what you're worth. Don't, don't undervalue yourself. My, my beliefs on it, most beliefs are that the inverse can be equally true. Now, not all the time, but a lot of times. So while it's 100% true, hey, don't uncharge, don't sell yourself short. This is equally true. The paradox is know when to be to put your stuff out there for free, to do something at a lower rate, uh, because it's, it's always building, building value. And earlier in my career in digital space, like, yeah, I was, I was undercharging, but it was strategically, it was like, am I going to get the opportunity to work on something cool and build my skill set, build my resume? Is it going to get me closer to someone who is just a massive connector and just knows everybody mm -hmm. and thinking two, three steps ahead? And that that's paid off for me. And the third thing would be almost just like a give back. Like there's, there's folks that I work with at a steep discount, not, not because... I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do charity for them, whatever it's, I, I just love what I do. And if I can help them, I, I always often think like measure, like fun is a, is a measurement for me. The more fun I think it is, the more willing I am to do it at a lower rate. Now, if I have that thing where like, this is the most fun thing ever and I'm getting paid massively for it, that's cool too. But no, it's, especially in, in competitive spaces where, where you do need to stand out and thinking ahead to what's this person thinking? What's going to make their life easier? So yeah, instead of, Hey, let me know how I can help. Like that's actually a bad statement to tell anybody. It's, Hey, here, here's what I did to help you. If you can right. take it or leave it. Uh, I did this for you in advance. I said I would do it for free. So instead of you having to hop on a call with me, I'm just going to do this for you. Enjoy. Maybe that person doesn't get you business, but then second, third degree connections. Totally. A lot of the people who I've gotten business from, when I was, again, when I was networking a ton, weren't the people who were the people who set me up with the other person. So like the, my, my closest knit network 
expanded into like second, third degree connections using LinkedIn terminology. And a lot of times the business mm. was from the third degree connections because they're like, yeah, yeah, I need, I need that. I love that. Every, everything you said, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> one, one great decision that I made back in 2013, 2014 was I spoke on a panel for a Washington business journal, a thing about social media and, and platforms and stuff. So there was someone talking about Facebook. I was talking about YouTube. Someone was talking about Google plus, <laughs> you know, it was back then. And, uh, and I, I really hit it off with the woman who was, you know, representing Twitter and I took a look at her stuff and, oh, she's, she's doing branding and websites and logos and things like that. No video, huh? I wonder if on these big rebranding projects and these big clients that she's working with, if she could kind of white label what I was doing and just kind of offer video as an, another item into these big branding packages that she's doing. So how long we talked about, I was like, Hey, I would love to come and just do a video for you. But I didn't do like an about the company video for her company. She did this really cool thing called cup of inspiration, where it was basically office hours. So every Wednesday you could drop by for an hour, get a bagel, have a cup of coffee, talk about your business. It's sort of a, uh, Hey, you know, like, like come try us out, you know, if you're interested in working with us and, and it was all in person because it was, you know, six, seven years ago. And so I pitched her, I was like, Hey, why don't I do a video about cup of inspiration? We can kind of get some action shots and kind of see what it's like and give people a taste of what it's like working with you and promote this event, which then gets people in your door, that sort of thing. And that project ended up being really great. And they sent that video to around to their whole network. And then I started getting a ton of work that way from, again, people that were hiring them to do branding and design and websites and things like that. And, uh, and still, you know, to this day, eight years later, she doesn't even li live in the DC area anymore. And I still get business from her and, and help her with her video stuff and things like that. So I think, yeah, hitching your cart to the right people when you're just starting out, uh, definitely pays off lifetime value. It's huge there. So, Wow. I love that. And that, I mean, strategic partnership, good partnership. You just reached, or you reached out, you, you saw yep. the opportunity and just kind of went yep. with it. And you only really need a few of those types of folks. Right. When you're in business long enough, people will naturally find you. But if you have those like super connector type folks, the mavens, I think to use the Malcolm Gladwell term, this stream of, of leads and business and flows and, and it usually yeah. goes back and forth. It's awesome. Yep. So I had a routine physical and found that I had a tumor on my testicle. And so I went to the urologist and I thought I was going to get a biopsy and they're going to tell me whether it was cancerous or not. And they said, nope, it's got to come out. You haven't, you have one good one and, uh, and that's all you need. And so we're just going to take it out. And so they did that and they did the pathology on it and they uh, determined that yes, it was cancerous. And luckily it was the not very common, not as common and not as aggressive type of cancer. And uh, I was totally fine. So I didn't have to do chemo or anything like that. And so I'm very lucky and I caught it early and like, I did all the right things. Like I didn't wait until something hurt or something like that. Just like it kind of felt a little weird. Like I kind of mentioned it during my physical, like, yeah, this one's a little harder. It's a little bumpier. Like the, the two of them really don't feel the same to me. And, and sure enough, like that's what it was cancerous. It was testicular cancer. So 
you know, one of the things like, as I've been talking about this and, and meeting people that have had, like, there's obviously there's like any cancer, there's various stages. And uh, so like the one thing that I've been kind of dealing with and thinking about and, and kind of working through really is like, you know, there's like this guilt of like, man, I thought I was going to have three to six months of chemo and it's going to be really rough. It's going to be really painful. And like, I had none of that. Like it was like fairly, like I had the surgery and of course it was anesthesia and all that, but I woke up feeling basically fine. I was walking around with my kids at the playground the next day. I basically switched from oxy to beer, you know, like the next day, like beer is better than oxy. So and, and really like other than the mental part of just waiting for test results, I was totally fine and continue to be fine. So I guess that's what I'm working on right now. And I, I, I don't have any mental health, like therapist options or anything like that, but I, I probably should look into that, but yeah. So I encourage everyone to do the things you need to do as an adult, go to the doctor, get your physicals all that stuff. Talk about your balls, test your, check your balls, like do it all, like do the things that you need to do to stay healthy. So there you go. Wow. <laughs> and that, ah, man, well, I mean, congrats. And I mean, you're healthy. And when, when you had told me first, I was like, yeah, I mean, you look very healthy. And, and yeah, healthy, I, you know, yeah, like it, I said, I mean, the mind fuck of, of that, of that guilt is interesting. And I mean, any, any entrepreneur business owner knows like, a lot of times, like the toughest thing is what's going on in between your ears and just how do you, how do you mentally handle emotions and, and challenges and all the roadblocks? It's like, I mean, that, that, that's not easy. I mean, maybe it wasn't physical pain and, and months and months of, of recovery and treatment, but I, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I got to imagine there was probably a few scary days or more than that where you're like, well, what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's definitely like in the first week or so, it's definitely like, uh, do I need to put everything on pause for a while? And and can I do that? And what does that look like? And luckily, like I'm at the point now where I have contractors that help me out and, and do a whole bunch of stuff and that I felt totally comfortable sharing all this with and passing off projects and, and being able to keep the trains moving and things like that. But yeah, I mean, you wonder, well, I mean, first of all, like, like testicular cancer in particular, like the most treatable, like if you're going to get cancer, like this is the one to get. There's like a 95 to 99% survival rate. And even if you think about Lance Armstrong, who had it like all the way in his brain and stuff like that, he was totally fine in six months. So I, I knew that I got lucky there. And then it was just a matter of like, all right, like this could be up to six months of not fun stuff. And so, yeah, just trying to have a, a good attitude about it. As soon as I got the diagnosis, I thought it was kind of weird that like, I never knew anybody that dealt with this. And it's really, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's very rare. It's only like 9,000 men per year in the U S that get diagnosed with this, but I, I still, I felt it was like, I've, I've never heard of anybody having this. So, all right, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be the one I'm going to be like, yo, I'm going to be talking about my testicles for the foreseeable future. It was really helpful for me to just like get it all out there. But then also to just like, I hope someone in five years time remembers like, oh yeah, like Patrick had that, like I should give him a call and, and he can help out. Cause that, that as one of the things that, that did happen was that I had a friend from high school who I hadn't talked to in years, saw my video that I posted on Facebook and immediately reached out and was like, Hey, like I did this five years ago. I'd love to tell you 
my experience and, and that sort of stuff. And that was super helpful. And I never would have made that connection if I wasn't super public about it. So I think being public about things is very helpful. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about it. It's, no, man, it's I'm sorry, I'm it was like, just like a total roller coaster. Yeah. No, I was, I'm just taking all that. I was like, well, Whoa. No, I, I don't even know Listen. what question I was answering at that point, but uh, <laughs> no, you know, no, like, no. I think I, I just, I, I had a good attitude about it. I decided right off the bat that I wasn't going to be shy about not talking about my testicles or anything like that. I had a party for righty and I didn't even realize it when I scheduled it, that it was on St. <laughs> Patrick's day. So yeah. I was back here. I had a big R, like a blow up R, like letter R balloon. That was back here. And I just kind of invited family and friends to be like, I was, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm having surgery tomorrow. Like, like send off for righty. Oh my God. That's uh, funny. Kind of shared a little bit about what was going on and, and answered questions and, you know, got, got the, uh, the virtual high fives and, and good vibes from everybody. So yeah, it was cool. Got a lot wow. of really great support. Yeah. Dude, the, I mean, the, the support's amazing. I mean, just in making the, the, making as best you can and yeah. coming out of it. I mean, it's, no, no small thing. I don't think by any means of, of having to hear like, Oh God, what now? And what needs to happen <laughs> to fix that? Well, uh, and this is the thing that was that I didn't, I wasn't even, I didn't even, I was not even told that I had cancer until the pathology report came back. Cause they're like, you have a tumor. It's probably cancerous, but we don't actually know. So for a long time, for like weeks there, I was just kind of like, do I talk about this as like, I have cancer? Cause like I could, and then my wife was like, you know what? Like it's probably the best scenario because like, what if they took your testicle out and you didn't have cancer and it was totally fine. You'd be pissed. You know, <laughs> like, you went through all of this and you didn't even have cancer. So anyway, had cancer, don't have yeah. cancer anymore. It's pretty wild. So. Well, the, just to wrap and however you want to just, I'm curious what, what's the rest of 2021 looking like for you? Best year yeah. ever, like on track with that, all kinds of, stuff i don't know about <laughs> best year ever i mean i mean i thought you couldn't do worse than 2020 and then here we are and like you know of course i get cancer but you know i'm in a good spot business wise i'm excited about the book i'm going to be uh, working with my editor finishing the manuscript and then it comes out in august and uh, and I'm, I'm hoping to, to do more speaking opportunities and some consulting and things like that around some of the ideas in the book and, and kind of helping people to better communicate virtually and deliver better presentations and kind of all the stuff we talked about. So I think that there's a lot of people, whether you're a mid-level manager in a company or you're a solopreneur looking to better connect with uh, your clients and consultants and things like that, I think that everyone should be using more video, less emails, more video, less meetings, more video, everything, more video. So that's, that's my deal. Yeah. That's awesome. I think, I think you're going to crush because there's a ton of demand out there for, for what you got and a, and a need for making this video world. just not much better. You know? yeah. Let's improve upon these zoom, zoom meetings. But uh, this was, this was awesome, man. I, I, I swear this, this hour just flew by. We'll need to we'll need to catch up again and just chat business and all the dorky yeah, stuff. Yeah, dude, I'm getting my about. second dose on Friday, and I have plenty of friends in Richmond. It's high on my list, so I'm gonna hit you up when I'm down there. Dude, yeah, yeah. next time next time you're in town, man, we'll uh, we'll catch a drink or something like that. Pumped. But uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah.
All right, man. Well, I'll let you get to it. Dude, appreciate it.